Please take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel according to Luke. This morning we continue our exposition of this wonderful Gospel as we continue to look at Christ's sermon on the level, here as they call it in Luke's account, and that's a differing sermon uh, from the Sermon on the Mount that we see in Matthew, but, but much of it shares the same content. So the same kingdom is going to have the same ethic in regards to these teachings. right? But as we've been looking through this opening of Jesus' sermon, we've seen that it begins with four beatitudes or pronouncements of blessing, followed by four corresponding woes. And we've looked at the first two of those. We saw, blessed are the, the poor... For theirs is the kingdom of God. But woe unto the rich, right? For they shall be poor. We saw, blessed are the hungry, who are hungry now, for they shall be satisfied. But woe unto those who are filled now, for they shall be hungry. And today we'll see a third one. But the realities of these beatitudes, and really the entire teaching on the kingdom that Jesus gives us in this sermon in Luke 6 is that we are to see as Christ sees. And we are to act as Christ acts. That is the nature of being His kingdom people. If we are going to be Christ's kingdom people, then we should see as He sees and act as He acts. We haven't got to the action portion yet. That will pick up here in a little bit. But we have been called to see as He sees. All of these factors, poor, hungry, weeping, persecution, all of these external factors were seen as as curses, as a a factor that God God doesn't... He does something that made Him angry. Clearly God is not happy with you or your life would be better. And Jesus in these Beatitudes destroys it. He destroys that notion of looking to external circumstances as a means of determining your standing with God. In other words, Jesus, in His preeminent sermon in the Gospel accounts, destroys the prosperity Gospel. He destroys it. The very opening of the message is a destruction of this prosperity gospel that if you just believed more, your life externally would be better. And what Christ is teaching these disciples is it, it, it might actually be the, the contrary. That by believing in Me, your external circumstances in this fallen world might be worse. But take heart. For what is now will not be forever. Because though you are poor, you are rich in me. Though you are hungry, you are satisfied in me. Though you are sorrowful now, yet you are rejoicing in me. The call is to not look to what is seen by external circumstances. But to see as God sees. And you will be the richer spiritually if you would but look to what God sees and orient your life in that direction. 
So we come to the third of these blessings and woes. We find this in the second part of verse 21, the second part of 25. Jesus declares, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Verse 25, the corresponding woe. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. One of the things I'm often asked when doing counseling through sorrow, through pain in this world, to people who are experiencing incredible turmoil, incredible despair, is does the joy that we're promised in Scripture come only like after? You know, because I read Psalm 30 and it says, you know, weeping endures for the night. But the joy comes in the morning. And so are weeping and joy these kind of dueling realities that we've got to go through a season of weeping, but, but then, then joy will come. So is it just something that I have to just endure this moment of pain and suffering and then joy is going to be on the other side of this storm? Is that the way we should denote the way Scripture teaches us to look for joy? Or is there joy in the midst of of the sorrow, joy that even in the, the greatest of despair still lasts and still gives us hope. Because I see Paul saying things like, we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I see him in Philippians 3 saying, we weep over the lost, weep over the broken. And then in Philippians 4 saying, rejoice. Again, I say, rejoice. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, Rejoice always. So, so what is it, Blake? Is it that joy comes after the weeping now? Or is that I, that I can have joy in the midst of weeping? What is, is the Bible contradicting itself? What does it mean? And the answer to those, those questions of whether joy is at the end of suffering and whether joy is in the midst of suffering is yes. Yes. There is joy at the end of this suffering. And yes, there is joy to be found in the midst of it. One of my favorite memoirs, and I highly recommend it for everyone, is C.S. Lewis's memoir, Surprised by Joy, which denotes his conversion to Christianity. That title... Surprised by Joy actually comes from a sermon, or excuse me, a poem written by Williams Wordsworth. The opening line of the poem reads, Surprised by joy, impatient as the wind. When you understand the, the context of Wordsworth's poem, though, it makes Lewis's choice of that title peculiar. Because... Wordsworth's poem was written when he was grieving the loss of a loved one. And the opening line denotes how in the midst of this terrible grief, as he was recounting a memory of this loved one, all of a sudden joy entered his heart. For a moment, the, the grief kind of washed away and he was surprised by joy. 
That, that sounds wonderful. But it's the second line that gets to the nature of what Wordsworth says. Surprised by joy, impatient as the wind. You see what Wordsworth denotes in his poem is that joy wasn't lasting. It was fleeting and ephemeral. Here and gone. It was a a flash in the pan. There was this moment of joy, but then it just disappeared. And it seemed as if grief had won the battle. So when you realize that, I thought, man, Lewis, that's not necessarily the best title for a memoir about your conversion to Christ, a, a, a line that comes from a poem of how grief will ultimately swallow up the moments of joy. I was like, all right, Lewis, I, I, now you're trying to be cute, but what are you doing here? But as I've read through that book a number of times, I came to realize what Lewis meant and why he chose it. And coming to know Jesus as his Savior, Lewis had been surprised by joy. But the surprise of joy for him was contrary to what he had learned from Wordsworth. Because where Wordsworth said that he was surprised by joy is it just merely this this estranged relative that kind of comes, pops his head in and out, but always seems to leave. Lewis was surprised by a joy that never left, no matter what grief rolled into his life. The reason why Lewis chose this title is because he had for so long held to the view of Wordsworth that joy is just this this ephemeral happiness that kind of comes in and, and gives us an antidote in the midst of our sorrow and pain, but it's here and it's gone. And this, the joy that he had come to know truly surprised him, a joy which couldn't be taken, a joy which no matter how much grief and pain he went through, and you can read his grief observed and, and hear about that, but no matter what he went through, this joy never went away. And that's what surprised him by the joy he had in Jesus. And it is precisely that kind of unshakable joy in the midst of the sorrows of this world, in the midst of our worst of weeping, that this third beatitude of Jesus gets to the heart of this morning. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. I love this because once again... Luke does not give us the qualifiers that Matthew does. Luke's account of the message that Jesus gives in this moment, in this specific sermon, will not press us to these spiritual realities where we can only make this about spiritual things. No. When he's talking about the hunger in here, he's talking about real hunger just as much as he is spiritual. When he's talking about being impoverished and and having nothing in this world, that's both real and spiritual. When he's talking about weeping now, he's talking about real sorrow. Real grief. Real pain. Not just the spiritual mourning over your, your sin. 
This is real sorrow. Real weeping. Not just spiritually, but now in the present realities. This seems bleak at first though, doesn't it? Is Jesus just saying, you know what, if you want to be blessed, you just need to be, you just need to be miserable in this life. Just weep, be miserable, be an Eeyore, and guess what? There's a parade on the other side of this. That's the way some people have taken this. There are countless, uh, countless ascetics and monks throughout history that, that made themselves out to be terrible. My life needs to be miserable. I need to, to empty myself as much as possible of anything that might give me joy and pleasure in this life because blessed are those who weep now, right? Is it evil and wrong to laugh? He says, woe to you who laugh now. Is it wrong to have a, a, a silly moment with our, our spouse where we laugh or, or laugh with our children where we're coming together and telling a joke? Is, is that terrible? Is it wrong? Should we just be stoic and cold and sad and clinical? That's what it seems to be saying. Praise God, Jesus won't allow us to go there. It can't be the case that you can't have this joy and gladness in this life now. Because look at what he says in verse 22 and 23, which we'll see next week. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn you on the count of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Notice, you're not just going to do that later. On that day that you're persecuted and hurt and and rebuked and neglected, rejoice on that day. And I'm sorry, but anyone who understands biblical joy and gladness is going to say, yeah, there's laughter in that. There's excitement and happiness and celebration in that. Jubilance in that. So laughing can't necessarily be what's evil in just the act itself. No more than weeping is blessed just in the act itself. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 4, right? Uh, There's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a a time to mourn, a time to dance. Going before that, the, the writer had said, God makes everything beautiful in its time. So it can't be that there's anything wrong with weeping and there can't be anything wrong with laughing and there can't be anything necessarily inherently blessed about weeping and blessed about laughing. So what is Jesus getting to? Jesus wants, to under, wants us to understand the kind of weeping that God blesses and the kind of laughter that leads to destruction. So we need to to, to lay out what is that? What is the weeping here that Jesus is referring to that blesses? What is the laughter here that leads to destruction? Let's look at these one by one. Blessed are those who weep now. What weeping does Jesus have in mind? Well, they're attached to the things He's already talked about. Poverty and hunger. The reality of suffering in, of this, in this world. The realities of sin, both personally and corporately, and the effects sin has. 
You should weep over your sin. You should weep over this constant attack of the flesh. When you look out upon the nations and you see the pains and evil and wickedness, it is not for you to be able to look at the TV, lift your nose up and say, those people are terrible. Thank God I'm not like them. That makes you just like the Pharisee. What you should do is weep over the fact that sin is abundant. Weep that there are people going to hell. Weep over the lost. Weep over sin. Yours and the world's. Secondly, we weep over the realities, the effects of sin, the secondary effects of sin, which is suffering. It's pain. It's death. It's sickness. It is right and proper to weep over those realities. When you get that terrible diagnosis, it's okay to weep over it. When your loved one dies, it's okay to weep over it. I would say not only is it okay, it's proper. Because our weeping is a reflection that things are not as they are to be. There's a fracture in me because there's a fracture in the world. So we weep. Now, the world is not short of suffering and pain. And so we, with the realities of sin and sorrow and pain, sit like like Jeremiah over Jerusalem, seeing it in all of its wickedness and rebellion against God and all of its brokenness. And he writes a letter of sheer pain, existential pain. And you know what the book's called? Lamentations. Weepings. He weeped over the realities of the fall. In Matthew 5 4, Jesus uses the term, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, the two words, mourning and weeping, are different, but they. They affect and discuss and describe the same thing. You see, weeping is the external display of mourning. Mourning is here in the heart. It is grief. It is immense pain. It is despair. Weeping is the external outpouring of that reality. And no amount of technological advancements in this world, no amount of medication, no amount of politics is going to rid the world of its suffering and sorrow. It may have extended the amount of time we think we had on earth, which is all an illusion. The Lord has given us our days. But death is still inevitable. 
Pain and sorrow are just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. Maybe you're in this room right now and you are living in a personal hell of pain. And here you are sitting in the the richest nation that's ever existed, the most comfortable, posh nation the world has with access to things and, and advancements that have never been known for the rest of mankind to much of the world even now. And yet, the pain and despair and suffering is everywhere. I sit all week long with young men and women who from every point of view should have it all together and everything's going well for them. And they're, they're, they're full of despair. Constantly on calls at 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. walking men off the ledge of taking their own life. It's real and it's abundant and it's everywhere around us. And all the comforts that we create for ourselves, they only do one thing. They seek to distract us from the sufferings of others. They don't take away suffering. They just distract us from it. As Christians, we weep over the condition of the world, over the destructive realities of sin, over the presence of death. The blessing in Jesus' words is this. Though we weep now, we can be presently comforted by joy that comes in the Lord and by the hope that such weeping will not last forever. The present conditions of this world will not always be. Sorrows will not always be. Sin, sickness, suffering, and death all have an expiration date because Jesus. They have an expiration date because Jesus. But in the meantime, as we await His return, as we await the day that He once and for all eradicates all pain and suffering and sorrow, in the meantime, it is proper to mourn and weep over sin, sickness, sorrow, and death. Because that is the complete declaration of your soul that the way the world is, is not Right. It's not right like this. There's no better example of the of the necessity for weeping over the sufferings of this world than Jesus himself. There are two times in the Gospels that Jesus is noted as weeping. The shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. What was He weeping over? Death. The realities of death and the sorrow it created. It is right to 
weep over death. And this is weeping over something he's about to fix. He's literally about to raise Lazarus from the dead. It didn't denote and undermine the fact that his heart is broken over the realities of death. Not only that, but in his triumphal entry, we read as he goes over Jerusalem and he he looks over the city, he says that he wept. And he, and he declares, oh, that you knew the peace that was being made to you today. That you had known that, that like a mother, he and I sought to gather you under my wings. What, what's he weeping over there? He's weeping over the, the sinful rebellion of men. He's weeping over the realities of death and over sinful rebellion, which has produced all of the pain and suffering that's in this world. Every act of suffering is a result of man's rebellion in Eden. And Jesus wept over that. He wept over them as he was leading into the journey of going to the very place where he would fix them at the cross. But in order to fix them, he himself would have to be a man of sorrow. It is right to weep over the sin that put your Savior on the cross. It is right to weep and mourn and be broken by the reality that people are lost and they're dying and they're going to hell. Paul in Romans 9 is speaking about his kinsmen, his loved ones, those who were of his Jewish relatives. He says that I would almost give my own salvation. I would give away my own knowledge of Christ if it meant them coming to salvation. He says I exist with deep anguish over this. It is good and right to mourn and weep over lost family members. Lost children. Because that's exactly what Paul did. What Jesus did. Just like poverty, the reality of sorrow. Just like hunger, the reality of sorrow and despair drives us to look for a source where true and lasting joy can be found. It's meant to unsettle you with this world and look for answers elsewhere. It's meant to say that the hope and joy that mankind needs might not be found here. We can't create it. We can't make it. We can't distract ourselves enough from it. We need God. We need salvation. We need an antidote and an answer to this suffering and this sorrow. And my friends, that help is found in Jesus. Jesus 
is the answer to our sorrows. Both presently and future. He is the antidote and remedy. He is the balm of Gilead, which gives us hope and joy even in the midst of suffering, while also giving us the hope that suffering does not get the last word. Sin does not get the last word. Death does not get the last word. Christ does. And so we read in Matthew eleven twenty eight this great reality. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Is that your heart this morning? Laboring for joy. Laboring for meaning. Laboring for purpose. Laden by the anxieties. Weighed down by sorrow of your own sin and brokenness. Tired of getting in your own way time and time again. Laden by the realities of a lost loved one. Laden by the burdens of of a child that may be wayward. Laden by all of these pains and sorrows. Then Christ says, come to me. I'll give you rest. You may feel like you're a burden to those around you. You are never a burden to Christ. So give it to Him. And He will give you rest. This is precisely why Jesus came. You remember back in Luke 4, when Jesus preached at Nazareth to His own hometown, He quotes Isaiah 61.1 about He is the one who is going to come, the anointed one who is going to preach liberty to the captives. But He stops at verse 1. I want you to look at what Isaiah 61 verse 1 through 3 says about this anointed one to come, the Messiah to come. The Spirit of the Lord of God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. He keeps going. To comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that He may be glorified. This is what He came to do. To take that weeping over sin, that mourning over the realities of death, and pain, and to give us comfort instead, gladness instead, peace instead, joy instead, praise instead. And I love that, that we may be called oaks of righteousness. I love that that phrase, oak. Think about an oak tree. It's strong, immovable, deeply rooted. And that's what Jesus does for us. That's what actually gives us joy in the midst of sorrow. To know that yes, this pain is here. Yes, this sorrow is flowing in like waves upon me. But I am fixed in Christ. And that's where the comfort comes from. That no matter how much pain I'm in this moment, and it's good to feel it, and it's it's okay, that it doesn't move me off of Christ. 
It doesn't move me off of Him. It doesn't move me off of His goodness. It doesn't move me off of the fact that He has promises for me and that His plan is good and that His purposes are merciful and is full of comfort. That He is sufficient for me even in this pain. That's what makes you an oak of righteousness. And knowing you're an oak of righteousness, it gives you joy that no matter what despairs tomorrow brings, you are rooted in He who is joy Himself. No matter how big those waves may roll in, they will never be big enough to knock you off of Jesus. So... You could say with Spurgeon, I kiss every wave of affliction that crashes me onto the rock of ages. When you know the hope that you have in Jesus, that your sin is dealt with, that He has defeated death, that He is returning to destroy all remnants of wickedness once and for all, joy will swell in your heart and it produces a righteous laughter and an excitement and celebration which is the blessedness that Jesus has in mind here. And this blessedness can never be taken from you in this life no matter what comes your way, no matter what pain and sorrow should roll in. It can cause you to laugh in the face of death, saying you are nothing but a servant that carries me to glory if you're in Jesus. It's the reality that says yes, today and even tomorrow may be full of pain and sorrow and weeping. But my joy is forever. It's forever. My weeping, my tears will not get the last word. All because of Jesus. My friend, what Jesus is making very clear to us in these statements, what you all need to hear, joy is not found in the absence of suffering. Joy is found in the presence of God. And only Christ can give that to you. And right where you are, by being born again, you can have God with you everywhere. I remember a time when Colt was probably four or five years old and we were inside by the fire and we were going out and cutting some wood and coming back in and out and you know as you go and get cold you come back in and warm up a little bit and Colt said this amazing you know out of the mouth of babes thing he said wouldn't it be amazing if we could just take the fire with us would it would it be wonderful that even in the midst of this cold we could have the comfort of that fire that's exactly what you have in the Holy Spirit Even in the midst of the cold of the night, the pain of the moment, you have the fire of His comfort in your heart and the realities of the joy that He alone can give. And this is the key difference between the blessing of laughter in verse 24. Because notice, 
The blessing is you're going to laugh. But then woe do you laugh. So, so it's the kind of laughing that denotes what's the difference between a blessed laughter and a woeful laughter. So what is this woeful laughter here? Right? Blessed laughter is this. Your joy is rooted in your treasuring, delighting, hoping, and knowing Christ. That's where that laughter comes from. I can laugh even in the face of this sorrow. I can laugh through my tears. I can be joyful in the midst of the pain because my treasure, my hope, my satisfaction, my delight is not tied up in my circumstances. It's tied up in my Christ. That's joyful laughter. That's blessed joy. But woeful laughter is those who give themselves over to a self-satisfying, superficial, shallow silliness. It is merely a distraction from the pain. I want you to know that one of the primary testimonies of those who are stand-up comedians is that it helps them overcome depression. It helps them deal with the pain that they've endured. But oftentimes, that pain still gets the best of them. That that comedy is there meant to, merely to cloak sorrow and sadness. I think of Robin Williams. I think of so many others. Who have killed themselves with drugs and alcohol who are comedians. Because the laughter wasn't sustain- Sustainable. The laughter on the stage isn't sustainable. This kind of woeful joy is a joy that is found in the here and now. And it is especially joy that is found at the expense of others. My friends, I want you to know it's fine to have joyful and brotherly banter between each other in the church. But woe unto you if you are finding opportunities to belittle others. Woe unto you if you think that it is funny to laugh at the expense of others. Young people, kids, hear me. Woe unto you if you think it's okay to bully. You are not representing Christ when you do that. When you find joy and laughter at the expense of others. You are to be the one who stands beside those who are outcast. Not be the one who belittles them. Woe unto you if that kind of empty, superficial, shallow joy is what you are putting your hope on. If what you think is the remedy of your present life. Ecclesiastes 7 gets the best of this. Ecclesiastes 7, 6. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This is vanity. What's it talking about? Think about how fast, like, thorns and, you know, leaves that you rake up, how fast they burn up in the fire. They're quick. They're here and gone. They crackle and then they're done. It's crackle and it's over. 
That's the kind of laughter that's in mind here. This kind of woeful laughter. That's all for the short-lived moment. That it's empty. It's superficial. You're like cackling thorns in a fire. It's, it's loud for a moment, but it's over quickly. So will be your laughter. It's not sustainable. This superficial means of happiness that you try to fill yourself with, whether it is the laughter that comes from um, you know, these momentary things, none of that's wrong. It's not bad unless you're trying to find lasting joy in it. If you think it's going to be the answer to your problems, if you're glossing over the realities of the horrors and sorrows of this world and your life by merely filling yourself with amusement, you're woeful. God wants us to be joyful. He wants us to delight in the things He gave us in this world. But not at the expense of losing sight of the main thing. There are souls at stake. Are we living for them? Are we advocating for them? Are we going after them? Is our joy rooted in something deep? Because this is the woe to those who find all of their joy here now and not in Christ. Isaiah 65, verse 13 and 14. Therefore, thus says the Lord God. Notice how where Jesus is getting all these things from. Behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servant shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. Where do you think Jesus got these Beatitudes from? You think He's just making this stuff up? You know why? You know why Jesus is saying the same thing that Isaiah is saying? It's because that's Jesus' words too. My friend, Jesus isn't teaching anything new. He's teaching what He's always taught. Isaiah's words are Jesus' words. He is the Word of God. And so, this reality of the great reversal, if you want to live for the here and now, if you want to find all your material, all your sustenance, all your happiness, all your joy, if it's all tied to here and now, then guess what? When it's gone, so will your joy be. So will your riches. So will your satisfaction. It's all gone if you're living for it in the here and now. I wonder you if you think that those reflections are outworkings of your relationship with God. Well, if I just get right with God, I'm going to have more riches. I'm going to have more food on my table. I'm never going to go through sorrows and pain. And if I do, I don't have enough faith. That is a hellish doctrine. It is a doctrine straight from demons. that says that you will not have suffering if you are in Christ. Christ says the absolute contrary. The knowledge of the righteousness of Christ will actually create further weeping over the conditions of the world. Because you realize just what's at stake. Have you realized... Truly what's at stake. My friends, eternity hangs in the balance. And Christ alone can be the means that gives us this joy. So this is what Jesus means in this text. Blessed are those who weep now, who weep over the realities of the fallenness of this world, who recognize that things are not right, 
who put their hope that they will be satisfied, they will be filled, they will be joyful in Him. They are blessed. They will have joy both at the end of this sorrow and in the midst of it. But woe unto those who seek to find their joy here and now. Who seek to put it all in super and shallow things. And especially at the expense of others. Woe unto them, for they shall mourn and weep. question is, where is your joy at today? Where is your joy? Is it in Christ? If so, it doesn't matter what waves tomorrow bring. You will be steadfast. Your joy will remain fervent even when the tides of happiness roll in and out. Happiness and joy are not the same thing. Happiness is an outworking of joy, but it is not the same. Joy is abiding, everlasting, unshakable Happiness is merely an emotion that can come in and out. Where is your joy? But maybe there are some of you right now who are going through the midst of this sorrow and pain. And you're hearing this and you go, like, I know it and amen, I hear you. I know that my joy is in Jesus. But it hurts so bad. I hear you. It hurts so bad. I see it day after day across counseling rooms and with people. I know it hurts so bad. So how, this is the question I want to answer here at the end. How do I fight for joy in Christ in the midst of my sorrow? How do I fight for it how do I cultivate it in the midst of this pain? I'm going to give you four tools that I believe the Scripture gives us and those that have helped me. First, know with certainty that God sees your pain and that He cares for you. Know with certainty God sees it and He cares. Psalm 56, verse 8 and 9. Come every... Oh, sorry, I must have didn't put the text here, but Psalm 56, 8 and 9. The the Scriptures tell us that God sees our tears, that He takes count of them, that He literally puts them in His book. He takes note of them. He cares for you. And He will be your joy. God sees and He cares. You can cry out to Him in all of your suffering, in all of your pain. You are not called to be a stoic. You are not called to pick yourself up by your bottom lip and just get over it. You can come to Him in all your pain. I hope you've seen that in the Psalms. I think of David in Psalm 13. Look at the difference. Psalm 13, verse 1, and then verse 5. Did I get that one on there, Freddie? I'm not sure. Yeah. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Look at verse 5. That's how it gets to it. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. My friend, do you see it? He was in real existential despair. 
I don't, I'm having a hard time seeing you, God. I'm having a hard time feeling you. Where are you? It feels as if you've held, hid your face from me. This despair is great and it's hard and the sorrow is terrible. But what was the difference? What was the answer? But I trust in your steadfast love. And I rejoice in your salvation. I know you care. I know you're here. I know you will get me through this. I know that I will make it through this day of sorrow. This is what an oak of righteousness looks like. My friend, David cried out in his suffering. Jesus Himself cried out in His suffering. Paul cried out in his suffering. Lord, take this thorn from me. But if not, I'll still praise you. I'll still praise you. Know with certainty God cares for you. And surrender your sorrow to Him. As Peter says best, 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. He cares for you, my dear friend. He is mindful and He draws near to you. God draws near to the brokenhearted. He goes after those who are afflicted and in pain. He goes after you. He pursues you in your pain. And you can know that with certainty. And therefore, you can be like Job, who after losing everything, having it all taken away, what does he say? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Who gives and takes and, and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, weeping and worshiping can coexist. If you just simply know with certainty God sees and He cares. Secondly, trust that God has acted in Jesus by providing the answer to all the sorrows that sin has produced both in this world and in your life. You need to trust that whatever you're weeping over, God's provided the answer in Christ. He's provided the antidote. Death is no more. Death has lost its sting. Why? Because of Jesus. Sorrow will not last forever. Why? Because of Jesus. Your sin has been dealt with. Why? Because of Jesus. Suffering will be no more in the age to come. Why? Because of Jesus. God has provided the antidote for all sorrows, pains, and suffering in and through Jesus. In the book of Revelation, we get this amazing scene. John in a vision has been called up to the courts of heaven. And in this vision, he sees, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Let's stop right there for a second. So, this scroll that is in the hand of the Almighty, the hand of the Father pictured there, is God's cosmic plan of redemption, retribution, and restoration. It is God's plan to make all things right again. 
But the problem is, no one can open the plan. Why? Because they're all unworthy. So if you need to know, why couldn't another man die in our place? Why couldn't an angel come down in our place? They weren't worthy enough. That's why. They weren't worthy enough. No one is worthy. So the thought that this is how things are always going to be, that sin's going to win, that death's going to win, it leads John to just break out into weeping. But here's the next vision. The next part. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that He can open the scroll and its seven seals. Who is that? That's Jesus. Jesus is worthy and He is conquered. And because of that, He can bring about God's cosmic plan of redemption, retribution, and restoration. And He's actively doing it. He is doing it. He could do it because He alone was worthy. He was coming and has come to do and put all things right again. And so when you find yourself in the midst of those sorrows, trust that Jesus has provided the antidote. He has provided the remedy. And when we trust in Jesus fully, we are no longer surprised by joy in our suffering. We're sustained by joy in our suffering. Thirdly, cultivate your joy by serving as an instrument of God's mercy to the suffering and downcast. You want to know the greatest way to learn how to find joy in the midst of the sorrows of this world? Go after the downcast. Go after those who need comforting. Pour yourself out for the afflicted. Pour yourself out for those who are in despair. And by helping them in the midst of their pain, it will help cultivate joy in yours. Because it takes our eyes off self and puts it on others. My friends, pride and self-pity are not far apart. And some of the greatest ways to crawl out of the pit of despair is to set your eyes with the goal of comforting others. I want to give you two amazing examples of this and how God uses us as His instruments of mercy to comfort. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, 3-7, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us In all our affliction. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. With the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So notice, right? We've been comforted to comfort. Hear me today. You may struggle with the idea of God's sovereignty over suffering and sovereignty over evil. I understand that that contention. But I want you to know why it's absolutely necessary. Because it means that your sorrow isn't meaningless. That your suffering can be redeemed for immense good. That your misery can actually become a ministry. I think of those 
like Joni Erickson Tata or Justin Peters or um, so many. There are so many people throughout the histories and course of church history that suffered with immense sorrows and pain. And you know the only thing we often reflect on is the hymns those people wrote us. Where do you think these hymns came out of? Just a bunch of religious people sitting in a white ivory tower coming up with what words sound really religious? No. They were often written at the darkest places of despair. It is well with my soul. In my hands no prize I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Be thou my vision. These came from places of despair and affliction. And they became ministries to others. We've been comforted to go and comfort. Listen to what Paul describes here in 2 Corinthians 7 with Titus. You can go to the next slide there. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but were afflicted at every turn. Fighting without, fear within. That means internal and external. We're a mess. But God, who comforts the downcast, how did He do it? Comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by His coming, but also by the comfort with which He was comforted by you. As He told us your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still the more. You see how the community of Christ is just all working together in this pool of comfort? Is that what's in the church today? Or are we constantly hurting each other in the church? And I'm sorry for the pain there. And I'm not talking specific about Hillside. I'm talking about Christians worldwide. We spend more time killing each other and hurting each other than being a place of comfort. And instead of seeing oaks of righteousness, the world sees reflections of worldliness. Do we comfort each other? Do we kill each other? Some of the bloodiest wars in history were for Christians killing other Christians. And we've not stopped it in our church. Just our weapons today are gossip and slander. And ridicule. That isn't how it should be. We end up causing more affliction on our own. And the greatest army the world has ever known, the army of Christ, is the greatest committer of fratricide. We kill our own. And it ought not to be. If we want joy to truly last, it's got to be because we comfort each other. Are we instruments of mercy to one another? Or are we swords of affliction? Cultivate joy in your life by pouring yourself out for the afflicted, the downcast, the sorrowful. Or as I say to my soldiers, we need to be hurt-seeking missiles to go after those in pain.
Lastly, you need to preach to your heart that what is now will not last forever. My friend, the sorrow and pain of today will not be forever. Heed the words of Scripture here. Isaiah 25, 6-9. On the mountain of the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a rich feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, and He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken and it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God and we have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in this salvation. What is now will not last forever. The pains and sorrows of this life will not last forever. So when's this going to happen? When's this going to be? The answer is when Jesus returns. Revelation 21, verse 1 through 4. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Perhaps... There is absolutely a place for psychological health. There's absolutely a place for certain medications at times. But perhaps the greatest thing that we need to overcome our sorrows and depression is not more prescription, but more entrusting the promises of God. That what is now will not be forever. Depression, anxiety, disability. These are things you may deal with your entire life in this present age. Chronic pain, terminal cancer. But what is now will not last forever. This light momentary affliction is working in you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And everything the Lord has brought you through is merely a means of ministry that you have now to others that you would not have had otherwise. Our weeping may last the night, but our joy in Christ will last forever. I know the pain may seem unbearable. I know the sorrows may seem abundant. But know with certainty God sees and cares for you. 
Trust that Christ has provided everything necessary to sustain you by joy in this life. Pour yourself out for the downcast and the afflicted and put your heart and your mind upon self and set your heart upon the reality that what is now will not last forever. That is how you fight for joy in the midst of sorrow. And in Christ, you will find that that is sufficient to help you endure even the greatest storms of which tomorrow may bring. You need not fear the sorrows that come with tomorrow when you know the one who brings tomorrow himself. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you so much for pouring yourself out for the for us who were dying and dead, who had no hope. That you entered into our pain and suffering. You entered into the evil of this world and you took it upon yourself. You became the only sufficient answer to the problem of evil. To that we thank you. Lord, we thank you that you have interjected our suffering by pouring your spirit into us. Those who have come to you in faith. That now we can carry your comfort with us everywhere we go. That we can rest completely that it is finished your work and that you are coming back and that what is now will not last forever. That only that which is forever is that which is grafted and found in you. So Lord, make us joyful in Christ. Help us cultivate joy in the pain and sorrow. And Lord, if there's someone here this morning that has yet to know you, Draw them to you. Come near to them and touch them. That they may see that your yoke is easy. That the rest in you is unshakable. That the joy in you is untakeable. Lord, help us be instruments of mercy to the downcast. Help your church be a place of comfort to the afflicted, a comfort to the sorrowful, not a creator of it, not a creator of more affliction, not a creator of more pain, but those who reflect the comfort You've given us. For it is in that kind of community of comfort that joy will be manifest even in the midst of affliction. And sorrow. Lord, when tears are our lot and pain seems to be our inheritance, let us see that we have so much more in you. And that though we endure through the presence of weeping and sorrow over the dark realities of this world, help us cling to the immense joy we have in Jesus. And the knowledge that we have in your word. The hope that we have in your promises. Lord, help us be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Looking to you alone for a joy that will last forever. Not just surprised by joy, but sustained by it. 
for all times because of your perfect work in our behalf. We say these things in Jesus' name. Amen.